Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to our service this Sunday. Uh, and if you're getting back from holidays, I know how you feel. It's a struggle getting into work or school or wherever you're going. And for us here in the church, it's a new term as well. We are starting a new series on the book of Revelation. And, uh, you know, many Christians actually fight shy of that book. Uh, perhaps you've heard some fanciful notions and uh, frightening interpretations, such as the Left Behind series. Or maybe you've tried to read through it, and as you go through it, you get put off by dragons and multi-headed beasts with horns and lions, plagues, thunder, lightning, you know, the rest of it. And yet, I guess you, like me, probably happily sat back and watched all the episode and films of uh, the uh, Harry Potter series and uh, didn't bat an eyelid at some of the things going on there. And you know, those films and others like it emphasize the fact that many people in this world are looking for deeper insights into the supernatural. People want to know more about the spirit world and about spirituality, but they don't like existing interpretations or even know them. Again, few have ventured deeper into what the Bible truly says. My mother-in-law, no, there isn't a joke coming here, it's all right. Uh, my mother-in-law, as some of you know, lives in Bosnia. And she visited this church a few times, in fact, uh, was here earlier this year, around January and February. She's been reading her Bible a lot recently, and she decided to read the book of Revelation. Uh, you'll understand, with her background in uh, war-torn Bosnia, she was quite horrified at some of the violence that's depicted or appears to be depicted in the book of Revelation and uh, some of the frightening images. So she stopped going any further. Now, perhaps you have felt the same way or been confused that many of the, I suppose, often American interpretations that are embroidered on top of what the text says. But the joke is that the word revelation means the very opposite of obscure. In Greek, the word is apocalyptus. Well, <laughs> apocalypse sometimes bothers us about nuclear war and the end of the world, but it doesn't mean that at all. In Latin, it's revealio, which of course is where we get the idea of revelation revealing new things to us. The dictionary tells us that it's uh, a surprisingly unknown fact now made known. That's what true revelation is about. A Bible dictionary tells us it's about unveiling something hidden so that it can be made known and shown for what it is, making obscure things clear. Now, just in the same way that Agatha Christie's Poirot or Miss Marple wait to the end of the play and sit down everybody together and then explain the facts. So in the Bible, the book of Revelation is fittingly right at the end where it teases together all the strands that have come through the Old Testament and the New and pulls them together. Perhaps that's why for some the reading seems a little bit complex. But at the heart of this book, it's explaining who Jesus really was, what he really did, and what he's going to do in the future. It's 
what is going to complete God's purposes here on planet Earth. And it is essential reading for every Christian believer. But like most maps, I suppose, it requires a key, uh, a guide, uh, and a compass to successfully navigate its course. We have some books that we've been using, and the uh, main book is one by John Stott, which uh, asks the question, what does Christ think of the church? And so Barry and Mike and I shall be your guides, we hope, over the next few weeks to follow through not just today's introduction, but the first seven churches that are referred to in this book. The journey we begin. Over to Richard, who is going to share the first few verses with you. The reading is taken from Revelations chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power for ever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Thank you, Richard. Looking through these verses, we discover right at the start that it is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. That's us, the church what must soon take place, and he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. You see, the book is from Jesus, but it is also about Jesus. He is the central character of not just this, but every book in the Bible. Uh, but also, you'll note how that message was passed on. God gave it to Jesus. He, in turn, gave it to the angel. The angel handed it on to John. John, in turn, wrote this letter and gave it to the churches. It is that important that it came from the very hands of God himself. And it is intended for wide circulation. It is a gift to the church. It is as much about the church and for the church. 
And then we read on a couple of verses in verse 3 <clears throat> that we are blessed if we read this book. Isn't that amazing? It's the only book I know in the uh, New Testament that guarantees a blessing to anyone who reads it out to others or out aloud. And it says that blessed are those who hear the word, those who sit around eagerly listening to this letter that John had sent to the churches and take to heart what is written in it. You see, apocalyptic literature, the literature that is revealing, uses the, the imagination to hear things and to understand them in images that are vivid. Prophecy, of course, is where God directs his word with correction, a challenge maybe, encouragement, and it shows aspects, as we know, of the future. But there's a blessing for everyone who reads this, either to themselves or to others, and above all, take to heart its urgent message. It's only when we imbibe and absorb its teaching that we discover its joys and greatness for our lives as believers. And then the next verse, verse 4, says this. John writes to the seven churches in the province of Asia. We'll be look at the, looking at them shortly. And he does what the Apostle Paul did. He says, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. That is, of course, the Father he's talking about. And from the sevenfold spirit from before his throne, the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, the Son, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, have you spotted the threes in that passage? That God is and was and is to come. He lives outside of time. He is eternal. The three tenses are pulled together in his character and being. There's the Trinity, the Holy Trinity here of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then it describes Jesus himself as three things. The faithful witness, his life on earth and final testimony before Pontius Pilate and the Jews and before the nation. The firstborn from the dead. He died on the cross, but rose again, that resurrection. And the ruler of the kings of the earth. Again, if you see the past, the present, and the future. His life on earth is a faithful witness. His death and resurrection. And then his coming again to take authority and rule over all the earth. So three is the number of God. And each of the numbers have a very strong and powerful symbolic meaning. There's another number mentioned here, of course, the number seven. Well, we'll look at that very shortly. But in each case, God is the Alpha, the beginning, and the Omega, and the Almighty. Three again. What a wonderful God he is. Richard, perhaps you'll take us a little bit further forward and read the next verses. Verses 9 to 20. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatria, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash round his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive for ever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thanks again, Richard. So where was John? Who was John? Well, he uh, was, and we believe uh, fairly firmly, that he was the Apostle John, the one who Jesus loved, that special disciple. And his ministry continued through for many years. By this time, he was over 80 years of age, we reckon. And uh, he was uh, one who uh, became very important as the first or one of the first bishops of uh, the church in Ephesus, which is in what we would now call modern Turkey on the uh, Aegean coast. And uh, he describes himself in the next few verses here as one who is a fellow victim with the churches facing persecution. The emperor Domitian ruled from 81 to 96 AD. Now, 20 years earlier, we know of Nero, uh, who killed Christians in Rome, including Peter and Paul. But this time, when Domitian came, he tried to impose his rule over the empire and only allow himself to be called Lord. The idea that anyone else, particularly Jesus, who had never heard of, could become Lord would really bother him. And so he insisted on what we call Caesar worship instead of Christ. Now, you can understand the position of believers. They would have had personal insults and racism, let's say, applied against them. They would have been shunned. Businesses would have been boycotted, perhaps. There was physical violence against them. And in the case of
John and others imprisonment, and here, in his case, in exile on the island of Patmos, just a, a dozen miles or so off the Turkish coast. Churches were experiencing all sorts of, uh, of assault, including death and martyrdom, as we will discover when we look in more detail at the seven churches. There were three main assaults. Persecution, of course, is the threat of physical violence. But what we also discover is that people were trying to creep into churches and corrupt their doctrine, their teaching, their understanding of who Jesus truly was. And that was rotting some churches from the inside. And then there was the subtle attack of the world around, encouraging believers to compromise and bring and draw them into immorality. And these three things have continued since time had its dawning. Persecution, error, and immorality are challenges to believers every bit as much, if not more so today, than then. Now, if you look at the map here that's coming up, John was recorded to write on a scroll what he was to see and hear, and then send it out to these seven churches. Now, there are seven listed here in the book of Revelation, but we know at this time there were many, many more churches in Asia Minor. We don't hear of a message to the Colossian church, yet we know it existed. The church was at Hierapolis. The Galatians had churches. Phrygia had churches. All those parts, not to mention the other parts of Greece and Rome itself. But what we think is that this group of churches, if you look at the map, form a kind of circle. If you go north up the coast, you start to move from, uh, the, 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 from Ephesus. You start to find yourself going around in a kind of circle that takes you through each one in turn. And so we discover that these could well have been, as it were, John's sphere of influence uh, and maybe a circuit that he regularly uh, conducted as he continued to share the gospel and build them up. Why seven? Well, seven is often viewed as the perfect number. It's the number of completion. And you go right back to chapter one of Genesis, and there you have seven. Six days of work, of labor, and on the seventh, it was completed. God rested, and he said, it is good. It is finished. And so seven is a kind of perfect number that indicates completion, uh, that indicates fullness, and it, in this case, suggests that these seven churches were picked, not just because they were conveniently placed for a scroll to be transferred from one to the other by a runner, but also, as John Stott said, that the seven churches of Asia, though historical, represent the local churches of all ages and all lands. So do you see that these churches represent us as well? The problems you find in them are the problems you'll get here in Amesbury or Salisbury, London, New York, California, wherever. These are the issues that God is using to teach the Christian believers. So turning round, John saw someone who was speaking to him. And he noticed first seven lampstands. So we're going to just take a look. Again, the figure of seven and the seven churches. We're going to take a look at who did he see? How was he described? And what does it mean for us? 
The person is described in the middle of seven lampstands as the Son of Man, and we discover is identified in verse 11 as Jesus, the first and the last risen from the dead. And he's described as, in seven features, if you look through them, his hair, his eyes, his feet, his voice, his right hand, his mouth, his face. And the way these descriptions come, if you try and imagine them, and you were to get an artist to try and paint them, it would look actually rather ugly. It wouldn't be very sensible. It wouldn't make sense at all. And you have to understand that this is the way a lot of the imagery occurs in apocalyptic books like Daniel, Ezekiel, parts of Isaiah, and uh, of course here, as well as Zechariah. And the thing is that, how can I put it? When Robbie Burns described, my love is like a red or red rose that's newly sprung in June, uh, he wasn't, I think, trying to say she's a really prickly character, and if you get too close to her, well, you'll come away and, and suffer for it. I'm sure that wasn't the image. He was thinking, of course, of the beauty of a red blossom and her perhaps ruddy cheeks and her beautiful uh, face was reflected in the beauty of the rose. Now, when we look at these seven characteristics or features that John picked up on and are described here, each of them needs to be interpreted carefully to take away from it, looking through the rest of the Bible, what is the image that it's trying to teach us about Jesus? John's description, uh, an author said, called Metzger, he said, is that it does not mean what it says, it means what it means. And I think that's the, the, the crystal clear way of understanding many of the visions that occur in Revelation. So his white head and hair indicate purity. White indicates sinlessness. It indicates maturity with authority. And above all, white is described as righteousness, the righteous acts. So the head of Jesus, the righteous one who is crowned here with this head of white hair. The eyes of flaming fire, they penetrate like lasers. They see our innermost thoughts. So that when Jesus went to the churches, he could look at them and say, I know your works. I know what you're doing. I can see through you. His feet of polished bronze, strength and stability. But in Isaiah, it says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Paul said, we should have our feet shed shod with the gospel of peace. Jesus brought the good news, the great news, the gospel to us here on earth. His voice of rushing waters, powerful, thundering, but refreshing. His right hand holds seven stars. We'll look at that one in a minute. And his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. The sword, it says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, is the word of God, dividing even the soul from the spirit. And the word of God is what we stand on, what we believe. And at the, book, at the end of the book of Revelation, it says, do not add anything from it or take away anything from it because God's word will not be tinkered with. It is his sharp sword. And then number seven, his face with full shining light from the sun. The light of the world is how Jesus described himself. A blinding light. If you look at the sun too long, you will not be able to uh, keep your gaze there because it will damage your eyes. We can only hide from his glory, but that light of the world shone. 
Let's go to the last verse, verse 20, and we shall see what these seven stars and the seven lampstands may mean. John collapsed after this vision, and Jesus raised him up to get him recording it and said, you need to write this down and bring more to come and share it. It's described as a mystery. A mystery is not something that is going to be kept hidden forever. When the Bible uses the word mystery, it means I'm about to tell you what it really means. And this is what we hear. It says that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Each bears light drawn from Jesus, the light of the world. Jesus said to us, you are the light of the world. Shine. Do not let it be hidden. He was the faithful witness. We in Amesbury are called here to shine that light. Whatever church you've been attending here is of no consequence. You, if you're a believer, are that light. Each one of us has been given that, and each of these churches centered it. How well are we shining? The seven stars are described as seven angels or seven messengers of the churches. Now, Matthew at some point refers in chapter 18 to uh, little ones who are his, Jesus's, uh, and he describes that their angels look after them. This suggests that churches indeed have something similar. Hebrews 1 verse 14 describes that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. That is the church. Each church appears to have angels or an angel looking and guarding it. But either stars or lamps, each reflects light, borrowed light. We must shine. The old children's hymn said, Jesus bids us shine with a pure, clear lamp. Now, the seven churches are going to be addressed in chapters 2 and chapter 3. And Barry, Mike, and I will attempt to walk you through it. Let's see what Christ really thinks of the church. Are we shining brightly for him? Amen.